According to the United Nations, approximately 3.6 billion people do not have access to safe and effective toilets. American environmental engineer Francis Delos Reyes is fascinated by toilets. In fact, he made a career app. His research team won a grant from the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation in 2019 to develop waterless toilets to not only improve sanitation, but also quality of life in developing countries. In this episode, Francis shares how toilets have improved the quality of life for humanity and the work that he's doing in sanitation. Francis, how did you become interested in sanitation as an environmental engineer? Yeah, I had my training in wastewater treatment, and that's coming from the field of environmental engineering. I was an agricultural engineer first, then a civil engineer, and then an environmental engineer. Within environmental engineering, we talk about pollution and water and waste treatment. Within that, I focused on wastewater treatments, human wastewater, domestic wastewater, as well as industrial wastewater. It was always an interest of mine to really think about the situation for not just developed countries with a flush system, a flush toilet, and sewer systems, and also the billions around the world, and also the millions in my own native country in the Philippines. Only 15, 20% of the population in cities are connected to sewer lines. In the provinces, it was just a few percent, or maybe three, four percent are connected to sewer lines. When you're talking about domestic wastewater, that only applied to really a small percentage. They really don't call it wastewater treatment, they call it sanitation. We can go into the differences, but so really talking more about how to deal with fecal sludge. What is fecal sludge? Essentially, the human waste that comes out from humans and combined with cleansing materials which can be toilet paper in developed countries, but in a lot of other countries, it can be anything, newspapers, all kinds of paper. In some areas in the provinces, it can be rags, it can be leaves, it can be dried corn cobs. All of that mixed together with human waste. That's what we call fecal sludge. How did you become aware of the issue of a lack of access to sanitation facilities in various parts of the world? When you think about wastewater treatment and applications of the skills that we have as researchers in this field, you really start thinking about how is it managed around the world. You just realize that how people go to the toilet and how people manage their waste is very different. In, I would say 10, 15 years ago, I'm not quite sure now, we got some funding from the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation to work on a specific aspect of this problem, which is how do you empty pit latrines? People use pit latrines, which are basically holes in the ground and people poop, the fecal sludge goes into these holes and when the pit is full, it's got to be empty. In the rural areas, maybe they can dig another hole, but in other areas, there's no space, it's got to be empty. These are emptied manually. People actually use hand tools, buckets and shovels to actually scoop the poop out. The first research project that we got from the Gates Foundation was to figure out a way to make this more efficient, more dignified, and avoid people from actually going down deep into the hole and doing it hand over hand and bucket by bucket. I imagine that there'd be all sorts of health risks to be able to doing that sort of work. And you can imagine, right? Lots of pathogens, bacteria that can be infectious in that material. And yes, there's a lot of health risks. Also, it's a question of dignity. A lot of this work actually happens in the middle of the night because both the homeowners and the workers don't want to be seen by neighbors. 
but it's very much a, a hidden aspect of how we manage our human wastes. But the question of human dignity, of human safety, these are some of the things that we were thinking about. There's one billion people in the world who use pit latrines, and that's a huge part of the global population. So it's being able to create dignified access to sanitation, but also dignified ways of cleaning those sanitation facilities. That's right, yeah. Sustainable development goals. Sanitation is one of those goals. That's right. The SDGs, we call them the Sustainable Development Goals. There's a bunch of them. SDG 6 is water and sanitation. In particular, SDG 6.2 talks about sanitation, access to safely managed sanitation. There's different levels of it, but what we want to think about is a process where human waste is separated from users. And the waste is actually treated and handled so that it's safe for the environment. You may have a toilet, for example, and flush it, but if your waste is really not being treated, let's say it just goes into a pipe in the back of your house and into a cesspool, then that's not proper treatment. If the pit is emptied and the contents of the pit are just dumped into a river, that's not safely managed. It's 3.6 billion people who don't have access to safely managed sanitation. We want to make sure that we're talking about the complete cycle or the complete path to manage sanitation, not just having a toilet, not just having an outhouse. Being able to make sure that everything is done safely. We talk about a sanitation chain where the first part of that chain is the user interface, the toilet or the structure, and maybe indoors, it may be outdoors. Then you might have a pit latrine, like we talked about, like a hole in the ground. Then you have to have emptiers empty port that, either manually or in trucks, and then take that to a treatment plant where it's safely treated. The byproducts of it have to be safely disposed of. In other words, treated to the point where you're not going to be infectious. That's that whole chain. For people in the developed world, like you and me, assume we just flush our toilet and we don't see the rest of that chain. It's really hidden under the ground, in pipes, under our house, under the streets, all the way to the treatment plant. For us, we don't really think about it. It's not visible to us. In many parts of the world, it's its whole system of holes and emptying and trucks and so on. How have toilets evolved throughout history? Initially, and the density of towns and people lived farther apart, not a lot of people would just walk away from their houses, dig a hole in the ground and cover it up. That may be fine, right? Maybe as long as it's far away from drinking water sources, far away from where people are living and sleeping. As towns became more dense, now we had an issue. In many parts of the world, they would go to cesspools. They may either be flushed to a big pond, which may be outside the house, or maybe a central pond for the town. Then people might collect those in the middle of the night and use that for fertilizer. The toilet itself, though the porcelain throne that we know now, has a unique history in that it was really invented by a niece of Queen Victoria. John Harrington invented this flush mechanism. There's been several developments along the way where it became more similar, but became more sophisticated in that you flush it, there's a water siphon that happens, there's a layer of water that remains, and that prevents gases from coming back up and odors to be taken care of. There's been archeological evidence of 
toilets from Rome and ancient Mesopotamia, ancient Indus civilizations, what we now know as Pakistan and that part of the world. There were palaces, for example, that already had, based on archaeological evidence, toilets and systems of canals that actually made the water flow. Today, in Rome, you can look at structures where it was a communal setting. You had basically a row of toilet seats or toilet benches with holes. There was a gathering place and there was water running underneath. That's how they actually made the fecal material go away. The modern toilet, the one I talked about earlier, that was the flush mechanism. And there's evidence that toilets have been around for millennia, 13th, 14th century. It's amazing how something like the toilet has helped humanity prosper over centuries. This also goes back to the germ theory of disease and epidemiology, really. Before, we didn't really have a clear connection between infectious disease that we can get from human waste and also how it contaminates drinking water. For example, cholera in the early 19th century was something that came back every year or every few years. John Snow in London showed that it was contamination of this pump on Broad Street that was the cause of cholera. Once they removed the handle of that pump, they were able to prevent a lot of deaths from cholera in 1812, 1813. That was like the first inkling we got about the connection between human waste and diseases. Then with Louis Pasteur and the germ theory of disease, it became more known that there are pathogens that make people sick. Improvements in drinking water technologies and chlorination, disinfection processes, have actually saved millions of lives and increased our lifespan by decades. Used to be that you'd get a disease and you'd die in your mid-40s or 50s. Toilets helps people live better quality lives and much longer lives as well. In your TED Talk from 2014, you said that westernized floors of plumbing may not be suitable in all places. Why is that? We talked a little bit about the history of the sewer line, for example, the sewer system. You flush and you have pipes under your house. That water connects with your neighbor's water and the community's water and more pipes take it away to the treatment plant. That works in some situations, but it may not work in a lot of other situations. We call that centralized wastewater treatment, where there is a central wastewater treatment the reason it may not work is, one, you may not have enough water. We are using very clean, high-quality water to flush our waste. That water that goes into our toilet tank is, has been treated to drinking water quality. We're using clean drinking water to flush our waste. So that's one. We may not have enough water for all the places in the world to have that model. Number two is cost of it. We're using miles and miles or kilometers and kilometers of pipes, pumping water around. It's a lot of energy, it's a lot of cost. If you go to Manila in the Philippines or Bangkok, Thailand, or any dense metropolis, if you don't have that infrastructure already underground, it'll be very costly to put them in. From a cost energy water perspective, it may not make the most sense for everybody. What we're advocating for is a way to think about decentralized systems. Let's think about maybe at the household scale. Let's think about a few houses maybe together treating their wastes 
Let's not think about miles and miles of sewer lines and giant wastewater treatment plants because that would be too expensive and may not work for everybody around the world. That's what I meant by just rethinking this model of how we actually treat and collect our waste. The Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation really liked the invention that you came up with. I know that we spoke about this a little bit before. They really liked your event, which is why you won that competition. Yes, we were fortunate. We won the Relics Environmental Challenge Award. We talked about this, how do you efficiently and without exposing workers to the fecal material, how do you empty pit latrines? We have this technology that we've tested in many countries around the world, particularly in Africa. The Australian charity One Girl has a program called Launchpad, which provides feminine hygiene products for free in schools in Sierra Leone, West Africa. As a result, girls are more likely to succeed in completing their formal education. What are the benefits of toilets beyond sanitation? Imagine if you are a girl having your menstrual period and there are no facilities in school. And chances are you're not going to go to school, right? There's already a lot of taboos with menstrual health management. Let's imagine you don't have a toilet at home and you have to wait until the middle of the night so that you can go out and do your business. That's a lot of not just stress that's psychological, but also really physical stress. Sanitation is a basic human right. That's really what we're saying in terms of quality of life, dignity, allowing people to get access to education and being part of the economy in terms of absenteeism from work, medical costs that are avoided, the impacts on livelihood. If you start adding all of those benefits that are a little bit harder to quantify, but if you start adding them all up, you would see that it really makes sense to invest in sanitation. An organization called Dig Deep did that math for the one to two million people in the U.S. who don't have access to water and sanitation. The number they came up with was $18 billion a year. Imagine if it's a country in Asia or Africa, it can be two, three, four percent of their GDP that can be affected. I have a few questions that I asked each of my guests. What does living healthy today mean to you, Francis? I think living healthy today is making sure that everybody around the world, regardless of race or demographics or wherever you're from, have access to basic services. For me, as an environmental engineer and sanitation person working in this field, it's not just meeting the needs of people who already have the services, but making sure other sectors of society, the underserved, have access to infrastructure like sanitation, clean water, which allows people from all over the world to live their best life, be able to live life the way they want to live and be productive in society and live lives of meaning that allows them to be who they want to be and do what they want to do. The emphasis for me is equity and making sure that we don't leave behind people because of their economic background or their social background. It's providing that equitable access to sanitation and helping reach sustainable development goals, number six, by 2030. That's right. That's right. I want you to imagine that you are in a room with your 18-year-old self. What would you tell them? I would 
tell my 18 year old self, maybe not worry too much. When you're 18, there's a lot of issues, right? In terms of thinking about your future or where you're going. I would say as long as you think about how you can contribute and solve problems that are of importance to you, that give meaning to your work and to your life, then I think things will work out. I know there's a lot of things going on in the world today. If you're 18 years old now, you can feel like it's overwhelming. There's so many things going on that are not entirely positive, right? Do your best and prepare yourself with skills, enrich your relationships with others, and it will work out. Hopefully, a word of optimism to my younger self and to people who are young right now. I love it. Finally, do you have any questions for me? This could be anything. It could be about logistics of the podcast, anything about me, your call. Curious about how you ended up doing this healthy living podcast. Originally, I was a public health blogger. I would interview people like this over video, but the recording would only be used for the article purposes. And I thought, hey, I really enjoy this, and it's bringing a lot of value to people. What about if we create a podcast and experts and various people can share their wisdom and their stories? Maybe that could also help other people around the world. Have a good day. Okay, you too. Thanks, Jared. Bye-bye, Francis. I'm your host, Jared Talvera, and you've been listening to the Healthier Today podcast. 